Hosea 6, verse 11. Whenever I would restore the fortunes of my people, whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed and the crimes of Samaria revealed. They practice deceit. Thieves break into houses. Bandits rob in the streets. But they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. They are all adulterers, burning like an oven, whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine, and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall, and none of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with grey, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him. Despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a, like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened their arms. But they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the most high. They're like a a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this, they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Thank you very much, Jam. Good morning. If you want to make a, a surefire pop hit, what do you need to do? Well, one of the, 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 the best ways is to write a good old breakup song. And the more bitter and angst ridden, the better. 
Uh, you want something that's really going to connect with people when they're really going through the mangle. And it's, uh, it's, it's weird, isn't it, how when we're in a dark place, sometimes we put on music that drives us de- deeper down into the pit, but somehow we relish that. Um, it's not always unhelpful, though, necessarily. Sometimes it can be, I guess, a way of channeling the pain and you know, a bit of catharsis or something, uh, getting through the heartbreak. I guess the sort of songs that people traditionally go for, uh, the classics would include you know, things like Sinead O'Connor's cover of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You, or The Righteous Brothers, You Lost That Loving Feeling. Those two capture a real sort of sense of loss and grief. But what about the anger and the frustration, especially when your lover has gone off with somebody else. Alanis Morissette's You Ought to Know, that's a, that's a corker. Then Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball, ignore the video, the song really gets it across. But then there's the, the defiance, the determination to move on. I will survive. Or Fleetwood Mac's Go Your Own Way. Now I could claim uh, to have been able to identify uh, the one uh, I want to focus on, but I did have to, I wanted to try and give a sense of trendiness. I've obviously done that already. Um, but I actually had to resort to asking my, my children. They're much more trendy than me. Um, and uh, the, the one we went for was a new one by Olivia Rodrigo. Came out this year, Good For You. Um, I'm not going to sing it. But I wonder, as I read some of the words, and I won't do an accent either, I'm just going to read it as me. I wonder if you can hear the the bitterness, the sarcasm, the bite to it. Well, good for you. I guess you moved on really easily. You found a new girl and it took only a couple of weeks. Remember when you said you wanted to give me the world? And good for you. I guess that you've been working on yourself. I guess that therapist I found for you, she really helped. Now you can be a better man for your new, brand new girl. Well, good for you. You look happy and healthy. Not me, if you ever cared to ask. Good for you. You're doing great out there without me. I wish that I could do that. I've lost my mind. I've spent the night crying on the floor of my bathroom. But you're so unaffected. I really don't get it. But I guess... Good for you. So which is it to be for God? I gave you all these things. Well, good for you. He longs for them to come home, but he hates how they've behaved and the mess they've got themselves into. He's reaching the end of his tether. He gave them everything, but they go after other lovers. Well, stuff it. Good for you. Go your own way. I wonder if you can feel it there in chapter 6, verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? As we've seen in previous mornings, that's the alternative name to the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim. What can I do with you? What can I do with you, Judah, the southern kingdom? It's a straightforward question, I guess, to sort of change uh, the family dynamic slightly. It's, it's, it's the classic question of asking, uh, a parent has to ask when children are completely gone off the rails. What can I do? I just, I don't know what else to do. How, how do I get you back? And then what? Supposing you do come back, 
Then what? It's happened before. You came back. And then it happened again. Getting them to come home is, well, it's just the start of the problem, isn't it? How on earth can he, a holy, pure, and sovereign God, live with a people who are wayward, this rebellious, a people who are sinful? But we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Uh, that, that's uh, an issue that's going to have to come on another day. We'll look at that on Friday morning. But there is the more urgent issue. How do we even get them back? What do I, what do I have to do? Well, chapter 6 begins with what you might call Hosea's reasoned appeal, his own appeal. I first read it in verses 1 to 3, and I thought, oh, oh, okay, this is a turn up for the books. This is going well. It seems like a really positive development. Here at last, the, the people in the Israelite community, maybe a, a few at any rate, a, a number of them, uh, are seeing sense and they're calling on their neighbors to follow suit. So, uh, come, let us return to the Lord. He, he's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he'll bind up our wounds. It's the sensible thing to do. You can just hear people trying to persuade those around them. Come on, let's do this. And then verse 3, let us acknowledge the Lord, Yahweh. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Refreshing, life-giving, life-sustaining, gracious and generous. Come on! So, initial reading seems encouraging. It looks like they've learned the lessons, uh, they've accepted the things that were exposed as we thought, uh, saw yesterday in the previous chapters. We saw no faithfulness in the land, no love, no knowledge of God in the land. We saw those things and it seems, verse 1, they've got it. Come on, let us return to the Lord. They seem to seriously know what God is like, that's why they're doing this. They know how faithful he is. As reliable as the sun and the spring rains and the earth that provides for life. Faithful and reliable. They know his care. Yes, there's an acknowledgement there in verse 1. His, his love was, well, it was certainly a tough love. There were injuries and wounds. Uh, and that language in verse 1 does seem extreme. It's, it, it's a little hard to... to to sort of get our heads around exactly what that means and, and to understand it, but, but don't miss the character, the nature of this God. He brings healing. He binds up wounds. So it stands to reason. Let us return to the Lord. But I fear I was naive because it seems most likely that these three verses are... are, are, are Hosea himself making the appeal on God's behalf, appealing to his countrymen and women, mustering all the logic and rhetoric he can. He pleads with them, but it's not enough. So in verse 4, God cries, what can I do with you? What an 
earth do I do? Give you up? Then come some of the most devastating words ever uttered by God. In verse 4, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Hosea's word for love there is, is significant. It's one of the most beautiful words probably in any human language ever devised because it is that precious jewel of a word, chesed. So hard to translate from its original Hebrew. English has no equivalent. I don't know of any other language that has an exact equivalent. It's a tiny word, but it is a treasure house. It means certainly love, but it also gives the impression that it conveys the sense of, of covenant faithfulness, keeping promises that have been made, a sense of commitment, a commitment to be generous and kind. In older translations, it was often rendered as loving kindness. These are all parts of it. They're different facets of the same jewel. When it gets translated into Greek for the New Testament and the um, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint as it's called, in, in Greek it's simply the word charis, which means grace. It's all there. And of course, at its heart is the supreme virtue of God in his mercy. It is chesed that lies at the very heart of the gospel and of the covenant, both old covenant and new covenant. A beautiful word, a word to treasure and to come back to and to probe and explore because thereby hangs the whole gospel this is what God is like. This is his nature, as we saw yesterday and the day before. But hang on a moment. Because verse 4, you see, is not talking about God. It's talking about Israel Ephraim. And it's saying that their chesed is nothing like God's chesed. God is faithful to his promises and his nature and character. The people... Not a bit of it. The imagery is vivid. It's, it's like the morning mist that comes up. And then as soon as the sun rises, the, just the, the first few glimmers of the rays, just the first sense of the sun's heat warming up the day, the mist is gone, evaporated. It's all burnt off. In other words, their covenant faithfulness is more like covenant unfaithfulness. The polar opposite of what it should be. And his response? An alarming metaphor in verse 5. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. Do you see, what is it that burns off this morning mist or the early dew? What is the sun? 
but the words of God's prophets that comes and burns it up because it exposes it for what it is, unfaithful, evaporating dew, hollow, empty words, unlike God's words, which are weighty and cut to the heart. So instead of their so-called chesed, what does he long for? Well, verse 6 is one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament, indeed the Bible. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now again, the NIV, which I'm using, the NIV translation doesn't quite catch the power because again, Hosea says, I desire chesed. That's what I desire. Not your sort, but mine, covenant faithfulness. And it's more than just acknowledgement again. It's the same word we saw yesterday, da'at, knowledge of God. The personal, relational knowledge, not just facts and figures, but the God that they know and therefore are faithful to. That's what he longs for. He doesn't want the rigmarole of the sacrificial system for the sake of it. The only way, the only way that, as he says in verse 11, the nation's fortunes will be restored is for them to show chesed. Because he already has. You remember how Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5? As dearly loved children, so love. Well, as those who have wonderfully experienced chesed, so show chesed. Loved, so love. This is not a breakup song. It so easily could have been. We can understand that. Perhaps we won't grasp Hosea until we we begin to understand how close it could have been to being a breakup song. God had every reason to write a breakup song. We ourselves in his position would have done nothing less. Well, let's have a pause there for a moment. Some of you heard Andrew Peterson last night at the concert. We had a lovely time. In case you missed that, we got a chance to hear him again briefly. And he wrote a beautiful song simply called Hosea. And that articulates precisely what we've been thinking and talking about in the last couple of days. You see, Goma is us. Every time I lay in the bed beside you, Hosea, Hosea, I hear the sound of the streets of the Hosea, I threw away the keys. You'll never leave me, Hosea.
But still, the people persist. They seem to pursue every possibility except for the only one they should. Uh, I've not kept up much with it since, but uh, in the early days, the Simpsons used to pack a punch, and it's hard to believe they've kept up the quality. I don't know, they're on the something like, what is it, 32nd season now? Um, But I'm open to being persuaded. But there was a classic moment in one of the early episodes, in the early seasons, when um, the perversity of human stubbornness is on display at its finest, um, Homer and Bart are on some sort of scouting trip and they, they go out in a dinghy with a couple of others far to sea. And obviously in this sort of crisis moment, they're, they're, they don't know where they are and they're, they're far adrift. So obviously this is the perfect moment for Homer to decide to wash his socks. Um, and so he uses up all their drinking water, which, you know, it's one use for it. And then he suddenly feels a bit peckish, so he eats up all the provisions in this little boat. They see a, a rescue plane flying overhead, and so Homer lets, sort of, you know, takes the sort of right move. He, he lets off a flare. Unfortunately, it hits the plane. Um, then thick fog descends. It's, it's absolutely terrifying. And so that, at this point, Homer has a complete meltdown in total panic, starts crying out, we're doomed, we're doomed, as if he's sort of channeling Dad's army or something. Um, the fog clears, and they suddenly see a boat. And someone on on the deck shouts out, are you okay? And because he's a typical self-sufficient man, he shouts, yep, everything's fine. (laughs) The fog closes in again and the ship goes off on its course. And Homer returns to panic mode. (laughs) Well, I think that's in a way the perfect picture of Israel in Hosea's day. The right thing to do is just so obvious, so straightforward, but pride gets in the way. They're going to have to learn this the very hard way. So we unpack Hosea's lessons for Israel, and as we do so, I plead with you to learn the lessons the easy way. But most of us don't, I certainly don't. The easy way is to heed Scripture's warnings. So what's their first lesson? Well, their first lesson is religion is not the answer. Their religion is not the answer. Now that is pretty counterintuitive. That's not exactly what you'd expect God to say because most people assume that God and gods are into the whole religion thing. I mean, religion... And certainly the practices that Israel was expected to, to, to follow, they were God's idea. That's where it all came from. He mandated all the ins and outs of the covenant. And he gathered the masses at Mount Sinai. He issued the commandments through Moses. But when their religious life itself gets corrupted, what hope is there? Look at verse 9. As marauders lie in ambush for a victim, so do bands of priests. That's not their job. They murder on the road to Shechem, carrying out their wicked scheme. I have seen a horrible thing in Israel. Their Ephraim is given to prostitution. Israel is defiled. 
Now, when your religious leaders are behaving like this, what hope does the people have? And the fact that this happens on the road to Shechem is itself particularly galling. Uh, Dial back a few decades uh, to the end of uh, King Solomon's reign and what happens there. Well, the heir to, to David's throne, Solomon's successor, is King Rehoboam. But all of tribe, all of the tribes, the combined tribes of Israel, are gathered in their representatives at Shechem to meet the new king, to swear allegiance. And Rehoboam, uh, as you can read in 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam has given very sound advice on how to, to keep the northern tribes on side and, uh, uh, and you know, make sure that, the, that there was a unity of purpose and vision. Uh, and they had actually suffered, the northern tribes had suffered quite badly under Solomon himself. His, his rule was pretty heavy-handed. So the advice to his son was just lighten up a bit. Don't be so hard on them like, like your father was. But Rehoboam refuses and actually goes the opposite way. He doubles down. You can read all about that in that First Kings chapter. And so the northern tribes are really fed up and they rally around their figurehead. Now, confusingly, some of these names all sound pretty similar, don't they? So confusingly, the guy in the north that people rally around is a chap called Jeroboam. Uh, he's Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he was to become, in due course, the first king of the northern breakaway, Israel Ephraim, as I've been calling it. And Rehoboam is left just with the southern rump, if you like, Judah and a few others. So this would give Shechem iconic status for the northern kingdom. If you like, it's the site of their reconstitution. They would have probably put a museum there and had sort of all kinds of trinkets and t-shirts to celebrate this great event, their foundation, Independence Day or whatever. The day of the divorce from the south so that we could be free or some such thing. And to make sure that people didn't feel too attached to the, to the south, uh, Rehoboam, uh, sorry, Jer- there I'm doing it myself, Jeroboam himself starts having to introduce all kinds of ways of just sort of loosening the ties with kith and kin down south. So, you know, it wasn't helpful if people just made the journey down to Jerusalem, so they had to build alternatives to the temple. And, and so this is why you had different shrines and, and places to, to visit that would be part of religious worship centers. It was, it was good political sense. It was pretty lousy covenant sense, but it was good political sense. And that would have catastrophic effects. You see, what has happened? Religion has become a political tool with the northern priests political puppets, effectively employees of the king and his agenda. So is it any wonder that they themselves reflect the corruption of the nation? The first verses of chapter 7 make that very clear. Just look down to verse 3. They delight the king with their wickedness, the princes with their lies. The priests are bandits. 
the rulers are wicked. Three times Israel is described as like an oven in these verses. It's a very odd image at one level. But I think the point is that this oven doesn't need to be you know, kept being fed with more wood to keep it hot. It's, it's an oven that, that sustains and retains its own heat. It's as if their sin is self-sustaining and just burns up and keeps burning. The more they do, the more they do. And so the more they do. But as ever, as ever, the perpetrators are themselves destroyed by the momentum of their own wickedness. Verse 7, all of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall. And the devastating conclusion of the matter, none of them calls on me. Verse 14, it's even worse. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. This sort of self-harm is agonized, but it's there to try and somehow twist the arms of their gods to say, hey, look at me, I'm doing this for you, you can jolly well pay up. It's basically bribery as a kind of spiritual blackmail. Look at what I'm doing for you, Bales. Cough up. Feed us, help us. But they turn away from me. The one who doesn't demand such extreme behaviors. He doesn't need to be blackmailed or arm twisted. If you know his nature and his character, you won't do that because you know you don't need to. Because he wants to hear. He wants to help. Oh, Ephraim, what can I do with you? Here we are again with what I suppose you could call the Goma syndrome. They expect to be supplied for their basic needs by the Baals and not Yahweh. But unlike Yahweh, the Baals take a lot of persuasion. Slashing and cutting yourself? Do these gods only take you seriously if you're actually physically bleeding? Or having sex with their shrine prostitutes? Does that show your commitment? Is that, you know, have you got to really do that to get them to give you what you think you need? So much for religion being the answer. It's really not the answer for them, is it? You can see that clearly, surely, from from the Lord's perspective. Do you really need to do all this? No, friends, your religion is not the answer. I desire chesed, not sacrifice. These are spiritual dead ends. And the sort of moral breakdown and the cruelty and the oppression, especially of the poor and the people at the bottom of the pile, you know, they're not even safe from their priests. No wonder people are turned off religion. There needs to be something even bigger. Even bigger perhaps than a reformation. But still, they have lessons to learn. The second is this. Your realpolitik is not the answer. Now what on earth am I talking about there? Well, it's a, it's a fancy German word. That's why I put in italics. 
and I don't know German uh, very well at all, but uh, the wonderful thing about the language is that basically you can create ex- extraordinarily wonderful words just by sticking words together with glue. And you can just you know, almost do it ad infinitum. You just keep throwing on more words and you just have these huge words. I think that's why Twitter hasn't really taken off in Germany. Um, lucky them, basically. But anyway, that's another story. Um, but realpolitik is one of those sort of glued words. And apparently, uh, I was doing some sort of digging around about it. Apparently, it was, it was coined in the 19th century. And it's all about dealing with the world as it is. The world as you see it, not the world as you would like it. I mean, there are so many things, you know, if you're idealistic and you've got great visions and plans for for bringing about great good through the political realm, well, you know, you have this vision of how it could be, and and, and that's what spurs many people in politics on. That's a good thing. But very often, the dream is so far removed from the present reality. And you've got to work with the reality. You can't just live in a sort of never-never pipe dream world. It's about doing what is possible in the circumstances. Even if it means occasionally having to go against your principles for the time being. Pragmatism is another word for it. So, for instance, during the Cold War, the capitalist West Germany was prepared to draw up some treaties with the communist East Germany for pragmatic reasons, even though both countries, after they'd been constituted, basically had in their constitution to, to um, treat the other with deep suspicion and hostility. But realpolitik insisted, okay, well, look, these are our neighbours and actually we're related to them, so whether we like it or not, we've actually got to talk and figure some things out. That's realpolitik. Well, I wonder if it's ever occurred to you how strange it was that God gave this particular narrow strip of land in what's called the Levant, that whole sort of Mediterranean eastern seaboard, Lebanon and Syria and uh, Israel, the Levant, to, to his people. Why give them that bit? I mean, the more you think about that, the more odd that is. Of all the places in the whole world to say, this is the land I'm giving you. Why that one? What on earth was God thinking when he told Abraham uh, all about it and then led Joshua into it? Did he know what he was doing? I mean, after all, talk about vulnerable. I mean, basically, it's a corridor hemmed in between the sea in the west, the Mediterranean, and a vast desert in the east. And then it effectively functions as a land bridge between three continents. Not two, but three. So you're an African empire, you want to trade with Europe and Asia, you go through the Levant. So naturally, Egypt has an interest, a very big interest, that's gone on for rather a long time. You're an Asian empire, you have designs on African land, so you go through Israel. So naturally, Assyria has an interest on their doorstep it gives them access to all kinds of other places it's a means to an end it's not particularly strategic in and of itself but look where it gets you you're a european empire and you're looking to expand east and south well centuries after hosea first the greeks under alexander the great and then rome both make short shrift of this little patch of land everybody wants it It gets you to all kinds of places. 
So what on earth was God thinking, even giving this one? I mean, it's tiny. Could have been anywhere. The Cotswolds are nice. (laughs) What about the lakes? That would have been good. Or the Rift Valley in Africa, somewhere glorious like that, the Serengeti, or somewhere amazing. I mean, why this? Do you get the idea? This, this place, it's almost as if the insecurity is inbuilt from the beginning. It's almost the definition of insecurity. And... The same is true today. So perhaps you can now understand better why both Israel, Ephraim and Judah are very concerned to have good diplomatic relations with their neighbours. It's only natural. So verse 11 of chapter 7. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt... Now turning to Assyria. They're making treaties or having discussions, not because they like them, not because they necessarily trust them, but because what else do they do? What other options do they have? They don't choose their neighbors. This is realpolitik. You can't be too sniffy about your allies. You have to live in the real world. You deal with what is there rather than what isn't. So, in the Second World War, either Hitler or Stalin would win. How do you choose? It's one of the tragedies of the 20th century. How do you choose? Well, the Western Allies did choose. They chose Stalin. That led to all kinds of devastation in Eastern Europe. I was talking to a friend uh, from Romania just the last week and we were just talking about the legacy of the war and, and basically said, yeah, Churchill sold us out. It's difficult. It's realpolitik. For Israel, Ephraim, to survive, you do a deal with, Israel, with Assyria or Egypt. It's not nice, but that's life. Now... We need to be a little wary of drawing straight lines from the Bible times to us. Just a little wary. We can't just immediately assume that ancient precedents automatically uh, have some kind of direct application to modern experience. They're never identical. They're never exactly the same. There are always going to be some differences. So we just need to be prepared for that. However, I think the great poet Seamus Heaney got it absolutely right in um, a poem called Double Take. He says this, history says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's not that it's going to be identical. It's not that the good things in the past will automatically happen again but there might be a rhyme there might be some things to learn and things that echo things that are sort of parallel well what is the hope 
Well, I think there are some parallels from this experience of Israel to the church today. Not exactly the same, but parallels and rhymes. What was Israel's problem, Israel Ephraim? Well, it was twofold as we've seen. They mistake their religious activity for devotion to the living God. They assume that that equates to covenant faithfulness, to chesed. And the second mistake is to assume that human strategies to protect themselves are the equivalent of leaning on the intervening God. And we've seen neither is true. And whether we're talking about modern Britain or your home country and context, if you're watching online or even here, whether we're thinking about the Church of England, my own denomination, or or your own local church or network, if that's another one, all of us must heed this warning the easy way by learning from Scripture rather than having our noses rubbed in it through experience. Remember chapter 6, verse 6. I desire chesed, not sacrifice, acknowledgement, knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. So would that be God's verdict of our Sunday gatherings or midweek events? Is that what he'd say of our Zoom gatherings? Are we merely functioning as a social network that could be like any other social grouping? You know, the sort of the Saturday Tiddlywink Society or the, um, the, the, the Friday Afternoon Ramblers Association or whatever it is. Who are we seeking to impress? Do our ministers use services to bolster their standing and therefore control over their people? Is it about polishing the brand? The brand is some sort of inspiring leader that others follow, always having the answers at the tip of the fingers. Or if we're members, is it a matter of making us feel better about ourselves? Feeling better about our weaknesses and confusions and doubts. Giving a sense of respectability perhaps in the community when people don't really understand or get it. Is that where we find our security? Ah, Our motives are so mixed, aren't they? It's so hard to sometimes discern. Even the very good things I do, that you do, they're mixed. And I know full well, standing here, that every single one of those temptations and many others that I've itemized cross my mind. I am not immune I can tell you that part of me is thinking, well, you know, my temptation is, well, I'm giving the Bible readings at Keswick. (laughs) Yeah, I've made it. It's a terrifying thought because part of me actually believes that. But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ desires our chesed, our covenant faithfulness to him. Not our talk preparation, our convention attendance, our regular giving, our time given to youth groups or summer camps. In other words, he wants us to know him, not to do all kinds of stuff for him without knowing him. 
He wants us to know him as he knows us. He wants our love as he loves. Dearly beloved, so love as you've been loved. It's interesting, isn't it? As we emerge from COVID, the, the church is going to be different. No one knows really how. We're regularly told the statistics are looking pretty, pretty poor for attendance in the coming years. I mean, there was a spike, wasn't there, in the first um, few weeks, sort of March, April last year, as everyone was sort of going onto Zoom and it was a novelty. And, and there are all kinds of, you know, in our uh, church context as well, we noticed that the number's way bigger than ever sort of darken the doors but then it sort of slumped off and it's nothing like as that uh, in most places and my colleagues in Langham uh, in uh, in Africa and uh, Latin America particularly have said they've seen exactly the same Um, you know after the novelty of church online it's really sort of slumped and nobody actually knows whether you know what sort of longer term impact it's going to have on what happens in our physical in-person services I wouldn't be surprised if there's been shrinkage. Are we being shaken up? Having our sins exposed? I mean, it seems, doesn't it, that on both sides of the Atlantic, there is a a bit of a shakedown going on. Some things are coming to light. I desire chesed, not sacrifice. Is our response too quick to analyze and identify a new strategy? Well, this is sorted out. This is what we need to do. So we look for wisdom in all kinds of different places. We, we, we you know, try to cull the best from, you know, world um, philosophy and, and marketing and business practice and all that. Now, don't get me wrong. There's bound to be something in it. All truth is true because God made it true. So God is at work in all kinds of surprising ways. So let's not just um, sort of be too negative and narrow about it. But there's one thing I'm not hearing enough about. Nothing like enough. Especially after some scandals that have been hitting headlines in recent months and years. Even this week, I've been talking to a number of friends about some of these, some very directly caught up and hurt. So in the States, there's uh, the Mark Driscoll situation and uh, Ravi Zacharias and all that's happened there. Uh, There's a sense of malaise and pain and confusion in the British church with the news that hits headlines of what happened with John Smythe and Jonathan Fletcher and Steve Timmis and others. Many of whom I've known. And and, and there have been genuinely grim abuses of power. And we can't just settle for looking down, just sort of saying, excusing it, says, well, there are one or two bad apples, one or two bad cases. No, I think there are some genuine cultural issues going on that need to be addressed. I desire chesed, not sacrifice. And the temptation is to look for techniques and strategies for solutions. We're tempted to manage the narratives and try and handle the news and keep it down, tabs down. 
And I cannot help but think that at its worst, this is making an alliance with Assyria or even irony of ironies with Egypt. I'm just not hearing enough of the only thing we can do in our confusion, but above all, our helplessness. Because the third thing is, Israel's return is the only answer. The evangelist Dwight Moody was right. God sends no one empty away except those who are full of themselves. Israel was too proud. Would they get to the point when everything else was stripped away, when their religion and their alliances proved fruitless, as they always were? Look back to chapter 7, verse 13. I long to redeem them. But, do you see the tragedy of the but here? They speak about me falsely. They don't know me. They don't get me. They don't talk about me as I am, as I long to be for them. I desire chesed, not sacrifice. Do you see why getting God's character right is so important? If you believe lies about God, you will not believe he wants you back. You'll think you're too bad or too far gone or too sorted. But he does want people back. He longs for Israel Ephraim back. That is why, as we saw before, he tells Gomer... It tells Hosea to have Goma home. Bring her back and forgive her. Give her a roof over her heads as a member of the family. Yes, even after all she's done. Do you remember when the disciples were talking about forgiveness with Jesus and he said, you know, and they asked, you know, how many times do we need to do this? And he said, 70 times 7. And I assume the whole point is you lose count. I'm not sure he's expecting people to say, right, well, I've forgiven you 73 times. We're counting and... Of course not. The whole point is to lose count. Forgiveness is always costly. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? God longs to have them back. Well, as we saw before... Those who are not my people, having started out as my people, are out where the Gentiles are, but as God brings them back, others are brought in too. So do you remember, as Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, how he replied, Matthew 9. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I am Gomer. And he wants me back. 
Let's have a moment to pause and reflect and then the band will lead us in a final song.